It all began more than 10 years ago with a man named Paul Benowitz. I never got any money from you. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. Be normal. This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, we're going to fulfill a large number of requests from over the years and cover the notorious 1989 Mutual UFO Network Symposium. Of course, this being The Saucer Life, we're not just going to focus on that one notorious speech by William L. Moore that this conference is mostly known for. Rather, we're going to look at the year leading up to that in the pages of the MUFON Journal and elsewhere, the buildup to the conference and the growing split within ufology at the time that was developing and in many ways came to a head here in 1989. Of course, the speech by Moore is um, the sort of centerpiece of everything, but uh, it, it's more than the speech, no pun intended. So there's a lot going on, so we best get started. As we begin this look at the MUFON 1989 symposium and the, the news that came out of it, it's important to realize there are some things going on in ufology that are relevant to what we're talking about today. One of these things was the explosion of claims that were gaining popularity from people like John Lear and Bill Cooper and Bill English. And we've talked about all three of those guys uh, at various points over the last five years uh, on The Saucer Life. So I'm not going to get into it too deeply, but if you'll remember, if I can jog your memory a bit or, or introduce these topics, these, these men and their topics a little bit, basically we're seeing the growth of the sort of dark side hypothesis of ufology where there are sinister underground bases and there are splinter groups within the government that have engaged in secret diplomacy with the aliens and the aliens are abducting people and implanting them and they're going to come take over at some point. That's a, a very sort of brief and rough summary of all this, but it ties into the abduction phenomenon that was um, – I was going to say gaining popularity, but becoming more prominent at the time let's say. So that's that's one strand of things that's going on. Another one, and probably the other major one that's happening at this time, is the continuing controversy over the MJ-12 documents. Uh, these um, supposed government documents dating from the Truman administration that set up a committee to basically run the government's UFO operation. And um, William Moore and Jamie Chanderay and Stanton T. Friedman were promoting these documents and promoting their probable reality. Um, debunking efforts have been going on since those um, those documents have have emerged. There are still some people who believe 
They are uh, they are genuine, but it was a real fight uh, dominating uh, dominating the pages of the MUFON Journal in 1988 and 1989. And I don't think we're oh gosh, eventually some. At some point, we might do an episode about the MJ-12 papers, but golly, I, uh, I would greatly prefer, prefer not to. But uh, in, in this January issue of the MUFON Journal, as we start looking at 1989 leading up to the July Symposium, we have an article by Bill Moore called MJ-12, an open letter. And, and basically, this is – this is more striking back not just at the attempts to debunk the MJ-12 documents as um, as being a forgery, but attacks against Moore himself. Now, we've talked about Moore previously on the show uh, in our Philadelphia Experiment episode. He co-wrote that book with Charles Berlitz, and he also co-wrote uh, the book, the first book about the Roswell UFO crash uh, a few years after that, uh, in the late 70s and, and then into the early 80s. Moore had been an investigator with APRO, uh, which with which we're very familiar here on the uh, on the show, and was a member of the APRO board in the 1970s and into the 1980s. So he he wasn't just a writer who picked up on these paranormal or UFO topics. He was an active member of the UFO community, and his advocacy for the MJ12 documents was was uh, drawing some negative attention. To him. And this article, this open letter, is an attempt not just to defend the MJ 12 documents, but to defend his own integrity. First of all, let me begin by stating for the record that I am not a forger, a hoaxer, a fabricator, or a counterfeiter, nor, to the best of my knowledge, have I ever participated in any illegal or un American activity in connection with my more than eight year involvement with the MJ 12 controversy. Furthermore, to the best of my knowledge and belief, none of my colleagues and associates has participated in any such activities either. Rumors circulating to the effect that I am some sort of government agent or disinformation expert are totally false. In spite of pronouncements made principally by John Lear and others associated with him, I am not on the U.S. government's or any other government's payroll. Moore goes on to explain that he has not reached a definite conclusion about the authenticity of the MJ-12 documents. He says it remains an open question. But it's not just the MJ-12 documents that he is concerned about. He's also concerned about some responses from people in ufology about the, at that point, recently aired TV special, UFO Cover-Up Live. And there were on that show a couple of hidden and voice-changed um, people uh, going by the names Falcon and Condor who claimed to be government insiders with knowledge of the UFO cover-up. And Moore condemns as inappropriate, in his words, quote, the continuing high level of sheer speculation concerning the true identities of the two sources who appeared on the UFO cover-up live show under the codenames Falcon and Condor, end quote. So, I don't I mean it might be fruitless to have speculated at that time who those people were and we might be doing a UFO cover up live episode at some point I don't know um maybe that's more of a, a Patreon thing it's a little indulgent to sort of 
listen along to parts of a TV show. Um, but in any case, uh, might have been fruitless to speculate on who those men were. But um, it, I don't know if inappropriate is um, is is the right word. People are going to sort of see value in determining who these supposed insiders might be and whether or not they are uh, they are credible. So this open letter mostly is about more defending his own integrity from assaults on it by the uh, by the UFO community uh, over the MJ12 documents over his participation in the uh, in, in the TV special or his knowledge of the TV special and also honestly um his reluctance to share information about these things, his reluctance to be as fully transparent as some within the UFO community might want him to be. In the February 1989 issue of the MUFON UFO Journal, we get the announcement about the 1989 International UFO Symposium and what that's going to be about and who some of the speakers are going to be. The theme for the MUFON 1989 International UFO Symposium in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Aladdin Hotel and Casino on June 30th, July 1st and 2nd will be the UFO cover-up, a government conspiracy. Speakers presently committed are William L. Bill Moore, Donald A. Johnson, Ph.D., John E. Brandenburg, Ph.D., Stanton T. Friedman, Timothy Good, Linda Moulton Howe, Jenny Zeidman, and John O. Lear. Five of these speakers will relate intriguing new information involved in the U.S. government's conspiracy to hide the real evidence behind the UFO phenomenon. John Lear, State Director for Nevada, will serve as the host chairman with Hal Starr, State Director for Arizona, co-host committee. I think my favorite thing about this is that the, the topic, the sort of title for the symposium is the UFO cover-up, a government conspiracy? Question mark, and then they they go on to say that the speakers will relate new information uh, about the government's conspiracy to hide the real evidence behind the UFO phenomenon. So they've answered the question before we even get to the symposium. I just they they don't need they don't need the question mark after a government conspiracy. By May, in the May issue of the UFO Journal, the program would be fleshed out a little bit. Uh, Lear. And Star would be welcoming everybody to Las Vegas and to the symposium. Walt Andrus, the uh, international director, would give greetings. Uh, Jenny Zeidman would be talking about the Mansfield helicopter case. Donald Johnson would present a talk entitled A Survey of UFO Vehicle Disruptions, which sounds riveting. Um, Don Berliner would talk about a hypothetical plan for crash retrieval. Uh, Robert Eschler will talk about the Chesapeake Connection, corporate America, and the UFO cover-up, which, which sounds good. Linda Moulton Howe will, and this is shocking, talk about cattle mutilations. Um, Timothy Good will talk about Above Top Secret, which was his his book, which I had. I don't think I have it anymore, but I had. And I think many who get involved in ufology around this time will end up owning at some point. In the evening of Saturday, July 1st, William Moore is going to talk about the status of the UFO situation in 1989. Um, Stan Friedman is going to give an update on MJ-12, and there will be a panel discussion about whether or not the UFO cover-up is a government conspiracy. 
On Saturday, July 2nd, Jacques Vallée would talk about uh, claims of UFO-related injuries in Brazil. Uh, John Brandenburg will talk about the Sidonian hypothesis. Well, anytime you're talking about Sidonia and you don't have Richard Hoagland on the stage, you are leaving money on the table. And everything would be finished up with a Q&A panel of Saturday's speakers. This sounds like a, 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 a very sort of sedate kind of thing. There's nothing really – terrifying. There's nothing really cutting edge here. Uh, there's nothing really that screams, apart from MJ-12, that screams 1989. There, there's, no, there's no alien abduction stuff here, which is fascinating. There is no um, government uh, deals with the aliens. There's no underground bases. There really aren't any of the things that we associate with 1989, uh, or really that that uh, that whole period, a- apart from the MJ-12 thing, so that's not an original observation I just had. Another person who had that observation was the co-host John Lear, the Mufon State Section Director for Nevada. He explained. His reaction to seeing this tentative program in the book Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America by Mark Jacobson. This is a very good biography of William Cooper. And for this book, uh, Jacobson interviewed John Lear about these, these years when his path and Cooper's path were crossing. Lear demanded that he be allowed to submit a list of presenters. These included himself, Don Ecker, then the research director of UFO magazine, ufologist Bill English, and Bill Cooper, who would read his secret government paper. That idea was vetoed by the crusty 69-year-old founder and head of MUFON, Walt Andrus, a driving force behind MUFON's attempt to legitimize ufology through an intricate system of field research, Andrus had no use for wild speculation that he regarded as unscientific and unpatriotic. He refused to allow Lear's speakers to present their papers. I blew up, Lear told me when I visited him. Andrus was taking my own conference away from me. I told him if he wasn't going to let us talk, I'd hire another hall down the strip. The people would follow us there, and our speakers would outdraw his. He must have known I was right, because we wound up speaking at the Aladdin after all. One thing that I found interesting about that snippet from John Lear to Mark Jacobson is that Lear very much gives the impression with his, we were allowed to speak at the Aladdin after all, with that little line, he gives the impression that Andrus caved, that uh, Lear said, we'll, we'll outdraw you, we'll run a show down the street. And Andrus said, fine, 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 gosh, I don't want that to happen. Lear makes it sound like him and Ecker and Cooper and English became part of the MUFON UFO Symposium. That's the impression that he gives. And that did not happen. Uh, those men did speak at um, – well, I, I know at least Lear and Cooper and English did. I, I believe Eckert did as well. They did speak at the Aladdin, possibly. Um, some people's memories are confused. I've seen and heard both things from people. that They were at the Aladdin, but maybe not. But they were not part of the official MUFON program. But we're seeing a split in ufology here. And this split was precipitated in some ways by the MJ-12 documents. Without the MJ-12 documents, you don't have sort of that documented evidence of a cabal of government officials running a UFO cover-up. And that notion was key to what Lear and Cooper and English were saying. You don't 
have as much support for those very outlandish claims without the slightly less outlandish claims that Moore and Friedman and Chandere were making about the MJ-12 documents. So MJ-12 is part of the official MUFON symposium, but the chaotic conspiracy stories wrought in part by MJ-12 are not going to be. So as we get into June of 1989, we're, we're a month away from the conference and MJ-12 is rearing its head again in the pages of the MUFON UFO journal, as is the question of Bill Moore's integrity and connection to not just the MJ-12 question, but to possibly larger issues with the government and UFOs. Robert Hastings wrote an article entitled MJ-12, Facts, Questions, and Comments. And it's not just about MJ-12, but it's also about UFO cover-up live and who Falcon might be. It has been established that Falcon, one of the principal sources of the MJ-12 material, is Richard C. Doty, formerly attached to District 17 Air Force Office of Special Investigations, AFOSI, at Kirtland Air Force Base, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Sergeant Doty retired from the U.S. Air Force on October 1, 1988. How do I know that Doty is Falcon? During a recent telephone conversation, Linda Moulton Howe told me that when Sergeant Doty invited her to his office at Kirtland Air Force Base in early April 1983 and showed her a purportedly authentic U.S. government document on UFOs, he identified himself as codenamed Falcon and stated it was Bill Moore who had given him that name. But that's not the only place that Doty shows up related to UFOs, according to Hastings. Hastings also goes into the story of something called the Weitzel hoax. Basically, in 1981, APRO received an anonymous letter from somebody who said they were an airman assigned to Kirtland Air Force Base. They had a UFO sighting alongside other witnesses, including somebody named Craig Wetzel. Or Weitzel. Uh, the letter says that Weitzel reported the sighting to a Mr. Doty at Kirtland Air Force Base, the Office of Special Investigations unit there. A researcher contacted Weitzel in 1985. He said, Weitzel says, yes, I, I did report a UFO sighting to Richard Doty in 1980, but it wasn't anything like the sort of close encounter of the third kind style experience that was described in that anonymous letter. And um, the letter also said that Weitzel had been ordered to uh, turn over photographs of the UFO by a mysterious, nameless individual. So basically, there had been a UFO sighting, but the letter that was sent to APRO didn't resemble the sighting that actually uh, actually happened. Um, the upshot of all this is that Hastings, through some investigation, um, concludes that uh, the anonymous letter that was sent to APRO was almost certainly, those are his words, typed on the same typewriter that Doty had used to type another form that we know through the provenance of where the form came from was typed by Doty. So basically, the typewriter was the same. Between this and MJ-12, there's a whole lot of typewriter letter analysis going on in the 1980s. So there is... Hastings says, um, 
a, a little bit of connection between this Richard Doty character and Air Force efforts to mess with UFO investigation agencies. Now, about Bill Moore, Hastings says the following. On the face of it, he appears to be just a UFO researcher who has been approached by questionable government sources. I have information, however, that raises doubts about his public image as merely a civilian researcher. Indeed, it appears as if he may be working, or have worked, for one of the U.S. intelligence agencies. So Bill Moore may not be who he seems to be. The question is, what is Bill Moore up to? Or what had he been up to? Is it bigger than the MJ-12 documents? Is there something else going on? So there's some speculation, and I, I think it's it's an interesting way of thinking about it, is this article by Robert Hastings, and, and this was far from the only thing out there that, that questioned what Moore was actually up to with this MJ, MJ-12 stuff um, and the UFO cover-up live stuff. It, it sort of raises the question, what, what was Moore originally going to say? In July 1989 at the MUFON UFO Symposium because the speech he gave that July at that symposium is in many ways sort of a response to what Hastings is writing here. And if this type of speculation hadn't been out there, I don't know. I'm not sure the speech would have turned out like it did. So how did the speech turn out? What happens in July? 1989 at the MUFON Symposium. We're going to go through that speech when we come back. If you like The Saucer Life and want more and want to support us, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. You can check it out at patreon.com slash chizomedia or via the link in the show notes. There's bonus episodes, uh, other things happening, a lot. Um, on a monthly basis and more often, depending on what the things are and what month it is. You can go check it out. There's a year's worth of bonus material up there as well. And thank you so much to those who are uh, already supporting us. Um, you can check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or wherever you get podcasts. And we're on uh, Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. And you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail. Dot com, or you can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. Um, some feedback from our, um, our episode, our second episode about Bob Renaud. Um, Doc Pinko on uh, the Patreon says, uh, the argument for piling up the nukes uh, is the idea of mutually assured destruction. And others have commented on the accuracy of the MAD acronym. The argument is that if both sides have enough nukes to destroy the other, then neither side will use it. So the ironic argument is that increasing the number of nukes makes it less likely for them to be used. Um, I'm not supporting that position, but that's an argument put forward. And this is a, a reference to the the image in uh, Renaud's contact ebook of uh, the, the alien saying, you're piling nuclear weapons up on either side of a wall and, and one of them may tip over. And, and yeah, I, I, I didn't really – put it together, the mutually assured destruction angle on that, that that's what they were criticizing. But um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Laura says, comprehensive birth control is a topic I never quite expected to hear during a contactee story. The, er the term is so earth serious and not very space agey. Bob Renaud reminds me of the creator of the Georgia Guidestones, although Renaud's imagination is far more fun. 
The first thing that came to mind about the completely edible food was the Indian company that makes edible cutlery from millet and other flowers. Uh, maybe the Corindians were thinking ahead in earth time in sustainability. I've never heard of this edible cutlery thing. That's a brilliant idea. Uh, Tim on Twitter says, come on, man, you couldn't call it his bobbleganger. Feels like a missed opportunity. Yes, I, I use the term doppelganger for the the alien double of um, Bob Renaud. And bobbleganger is so much better. Uh, Kyle on the Patreon um, notes that um, the Raelians uh, are involved in the anti uh uh, female genital mutilation movement, and they actually have a, a charity um, for the cause, which is which is fascinating. Um, Paul on the Patreon says, "Love these episodes. Any hope of getting a Serpo episode this year?" Yes, probably. Or failing that, an episode about the esteemed Doctor Peter Beater and his organic robotoids. Yes, there will be a Peter Beater episode at some point. If you're not in the loop on Dr. Beater, um, it's it's a trip. It's not super saucer-centric, but it's definitely within the wheelhouse of things we cover here on the show. Um, another listener on Instagram, uh, Idmil, uh, proposes the um, – the food source in the container is probably spam or they say any other weird shelf stable meat product from Hormel. Um, yeah, that stuff's weird. I mean, spam is not weird. It's just sort of processed pork shoulder, but some of the other stuff is just awful. I remember, um, at one point when I was, when I was younger, um, a, a friend sort of cluing me into, uh, the, the horrible sort of visceral feeling of, of, illness when you pick up a can of pork brains in milk gravy, sort of canned pork brains in milk gravy, 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 and you shake it and, and sort of the, the sound and feel of that product in the can. It's very, uh, very troubling. I like to think the uh, Space Brothers and Sisters have um, moved beyond that sort of thing. And, and finally, um, uh, correspondent Lester uh, says uh, Jack Brewer, a friend of the show, has demonstrated connections between NICAP and the CIA. But what about the competition, APRO? Were they connected with CIA, FBI, some other government outfit? The Collins elite Nick Redfern writes about. Um, I, I think this episode will at least partially sort of answer that or address at least one angle. Uh, we already sort of have seen with um, the, uh, the, the Weitzel hoax at least in Hastings' conception of it, we've got the AFOSI sort of jerking APRO around a little bit there. And um, yeah, I, I, I assume so. Although APRO was, was much more of a um, sort of homespun, sort of a different kind of organization than NICAP. Um, didn't have the sort of high-powered board of directors with deep governmental uh, connections like NICAP did at its uh, at its inception. So um, maybe fewer inroads for the intelligence community to sort of um, be involved with, with jumpstarting something like APRO. Um, and if you haven't read uh, Jack Brewer's book, Wayward Sons, about the CIA's involvement um, or connections to the origins of NICAP, it is well worth a read. 
All right. Thank you for the correspondence. And uh, now we are going to dive into Bill Moore's 1989 MUFON Symposium speech. All right. So the way we're going to do this is I've got I've got clips from the actual speech. It's out there on uh, it's out there on YouTube. I actually had it. I think before it was on YouTube, I had a a uh, DVD that was basically a a, a digitized version of the uh, of, of Bill Moore's speech and Bill English's speech. So going to have some clips, but it, we're not going to just play the recording. That would be. Um, it's on YouTube. You can play the whole thing if you want or watch it. Uh, so it's it's interesting. It's an interesting speech. And uh, afterward, we'll talk about sort of you know the perception later on of it. And even at the time, um, there were people reading into things that might not – reading things into it that might not have been there. But this is how Moore began his address to the MUFON Symposium. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and adversaries – associates, and colleagues. In short, fellow ufologists. I had really wanted to come here tonight and kick ass. But fortunately for us all, wiser heads have prevailed, and we're going to keep this thing professional. Those people sort of loudly cheering for more to kick ass are, are probably going to be disappointed by what is to come. So Bill talks a little bit about um, you know thanking Walt Andrus and 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 things and he's going to um, basically try to answer some questions about himself and what he's been up to. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm aware that you already know my name and I'm equally certain that many of you are wondering just who is Bill Moore. And what's he up to? Added to that, I'm sure, are many other questions. Is this man a government agent? What about his rumored contacts within the intelligence community? Are the MJ-12 documents real? Or are they counterfeit? And if they're counterfeit, did he forge them? And isn't he really in it for the money, after all? The truth about Bill Moore, I'm afraid, is considerably less sensational. He goes on to give some background on himself, sort of reminding people that he he co-wrote the Philadelphia Experiment and the Roswell Incident, and that these books had um, had you know been the result of careful research that the community had in many cases respected. Um, and it is the same with the MJ-12 controversy. Um, he's bringing, he says, that same level of investigation to that project. This unfortunately has given rise to considerable controversy with a number of falsehoods having been spread by others in the UFO community who saw fit to jump to hasty conclusions inappropriately formed without benefit of all the facts. We encountered some of these rumors in Robert Hastings's article from the June issue of the MUFON UFO Journal. But the first one that 
Moore wants to address is that he is rich or that he's funded by the government or that he's on the take somehow. The real Bill Moore is as poor as a church mouse. I came away from a divorce in 1983 with virtually nothing. I went through bankruptcy shortly thereafter. I began to rebuild my life. The money I make from writing, royalties, and the sale of mostly UFO-oriented books and publications is all plowed back into living expenses and continuing research. It's a constant scrape to get by, but I believe in what I'm doing. And in order to preserve the freedom necessary to continue, I've had to make sacrifices. I'm definitely not in this business for the money. I live in a rented house. I drive a 1977 car and a 1979 motorcycle. I have no savings accounts, no stocks, no bonds, and I recently dropped my health insurance because I couldn't afford it any longer. I'm not looking for a handout, nor do I expect any sympathy. I simply tell you this because I want it on the record. If you've got any questions about Bill Moore's lifestyle, you are welcome to go see him and uh, check out, I don't know, the state of abject poverty he was living in or or at least the, the state of modest accommodation he had. But what about the other rumors that the MJ-12 thing is a massive Bill Moore fabrication? Those who allege that I have counterfeited documents and concocted a hoax on the MJ-12 matter had better take the same facts into account. Rest assured, I know myself well enough. If I was trying to perpetrate a hoax, I would have played it for all the cash I could get a long time ago and taken the money and run, as some are doing even now in the UFO community. And as for my being on the government's payroll, I can only say that I wish I was. The government pays well, and it provides excellent benefits. Wow. That could not have set well with a lot of people in the audience. Um, There was, from accounts of people who were there, such as Greg Bishop, who was uh, uh, acquainted with Moore at the time, and afterwards, of course, uh, according to people like Greg Bishop and and others who were there, there was a lot of jeering, a lot of catcalling, a lot of complaining during various parts of Moore's speech. And one problem with this recording is that it doesn't pick that up very clearly. As you'll hear, there are some places where you can clearly tell some people in the audience are voicing some sort of feeling, but it's kind of indistinct trying to hear it. Next, Moore moves into the question of why anybody should believe him about anything that he's saying. And he says, quote, the fact is that I have information that will add to your knowledge of the UFO phenomenon. I'll report it to you in as reliable a fashion as I can and in as objective a manner as possible. Um, People who know him and like him will be comforted by that. Others will continue to cast aspersions, in his words, cast aspersions and throw rocks in his direction. The MJ-12 saga, he explains, is, is, has been um, typical of American ufology's three-ring circus. And ufology is in 
a crisis. And there have been throughout human history various quests for for truth and knowledge. And the, the, the UFO crowd is not doing it very effectively. And he's been witnessing this for a very long time. I've been accumulating information on the UFO phenomenon for more than 25 years. During that time, I have watched ufology trying to grow up, trying to achieve respectability with the public, the news media, and the scientific community. In that process, I am sorry to say it's been my observation that we have been our own worst enemy. No skeptic, no debunker could possibly do what we have done to ourselves, not once, but time and time again. We say we want respectability, yet we have made little effort to construct the foundations necessary to achieve it. Sadly, we have no uniform standards, no professional ethics, no peers, no qualifications, no uniform goals, and few credible spokespersons. Nobody speaks for ufology. Or rather, perhaps more correctly, everybody speaks for ufology, all at the same time, and each with a different voice. Anybody can be a ufologist. All they need to do is tack the title to the end of their name and publish, yes, even self-publish, a book, start a newsletter, or get themselves on television. Or start a podcast or go on YouTube. Not much has changed. And actually, um, one of the things that strikes me as I listened to the speech or I think I read it first. It was published in the November and December uh, issues of 1989 issues of the MUFON UFO Journal. And uh, copies of this are out there on the internet in various places. I think I found mine on uh, Scribd. Um, one of the things that struck me when I first encountered this speech is that you know, I, I, I had always read the sensational parts that you're waiting for on this show right now, waiting for almost 40 minutes now. Don't worry. We will get to them. But I've, I've always heard about those, those parts that have to do with the intelligence community and disinformation and things like that. And I, I mean, that's all anybody really remembers about it. But this is, at, at the outset, a, a sort of blistering denunciation of ufology, which, you know, is kind of passe now. You go on on the internet and social media, and, and yes, everybody has been saying these kinds of things about ufology for a long time. But Moore was a name, and Moore was saying this to a room full of people who had done exactly what he said, tacked ufologist on the end of their name and published a book. And one could argue that um, – that the same charge could be leveled at more in, in in many ways. Moore speaks a little while longer about the trials and travails of ufology in America and its its downfalls and its shortcomings, and then he begins to get into the heart of what he is talking about, and he tells us where it all begins. It all began more than ten years ago with a man named Paul Benowitz. Let me preface my remarks by offering the sincere and candid statement that what I'm going to say is to the best of my knowledge entirely true. It is offered without malice or prejudice in any way and is under no circumstances. 
no circumstances intended to be libelous or defamatory. I genuinely like Mr. Benowitz, continue to regard him as a friend, and have a great deal of sympathy for the difficulties he's been through. It is not my intention to upset him with these revelations, but rather to add a few facts to a record that's been out of balance for a lot of years. So the saga of Paul Benowitz, we have talked about this occasionally on the show. We've never done a deep dive into Benowitz for a number of reasons, Uh, the biggest reason of which is that there are at least three really good books, four really good – there's several really good books that deal with this subject in depth. And um, although I don't live up to this, my goal is to not cover things that have been covered – exhaustively elsewhere. Um, But yet I'm doing the Bill Moore move on speech. Yes, I I don't live up to my own expectations. But I encourage you to read um, Greg Bishop's Project Beta and uh, Chris Lambright's Ex Descending and um, Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington and uh, Adam Gorightly's Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks. Uh, Between those books, amongst those books, you will get a, a thorough education in what was going on with, uh, with Paul Benowitz, Benowitz, which we will sort of pracy here as we move through what Moore said in 1989 about the, uh, the Benowitz case as well. Moore recounts how he moved to Arizona in 1979 to be closer to the home of Coral and Jim Lorenzen and the, the headquarters of APRO. And he eventually became a member of the board of directors. And it was through this that he became acquainted with Paul Benowitz. And Paul Benowitz was working with Dr. Leo Sprinkle, the abduction um, I was going to say experiencer, the abduction expert. And they were working with a young woman who had been abducted and who had been taken into a place where um, they were processing body parts from cattle mutilations. And during these hypnosis sessions, um, they uh, revealed or, or Benowitz believed that the woman had been implanted with a communication device with an she had an alien implant in her uh, in her head. So Benowitz starts going down this rabbit hole and he's seeing UFOs near Kirtland Air Force Base and the Manzano Weapons Testing Range in Albuquerque. He is picking up radio signals from the area, which he believes are signals from alien craft. He's reported this to the Air Force. The Air Force is talking to him and Moore becomes acquainted with Benowitz through this process. It takes a while until he meets him. He's mostly corresponding and reading reports and things like that. Moore explains that the Lorenzens um, thought that Benowitz was you know, not being objective. He'd already decided he knew what the aliens were up to and that there was a plan. Um, but Moore was intrigued by all of this. And in 1980, Moore has an experience that changes the whole course of this investigation. In early September 1980, I was approached by a well-placed individual within the intelligence community who claimed to be directly connected to a high-level government project dealing with UFOs. This individual, who subsequently came to be known as the Falcon, 
told me that he spoke for a small group of similar individuals who were uncomfortable with the government's continuing cover-up of the truth and indicated that he and his group would like to help me with my research into the subject in the hope that I might be able to help them find a way to change their prevailing policy and get the facts out without breaking any laws in the process. I knew I was being recruited, but at that point I had no idea for what. In any case, I was told that if I was interested in cooperating with their group, I would further be contacted by a liaison man, and that future meetings between me and the Falcon would be arranged by this person. The liaison person who subsequently made contact with me was AFOSI agent Richard Doty, a man who has since become quite controversial in his own right, and who many people have mistakenly assumed is the Falcon himself. So now, now we're getting into it. Somebody approaches Moore and says, we'd like you to work with us. We're a small cabal of people who want the truth to get out. Moore says he knows he was being recruited by the Falcon. Now, this is where one of the places where people start to think, okay, this is shady right? Why would somebody knowingly work with the people who are involved with the cover-up? Well, we'll get into to some of that as we go, but uh, the Falcon. The Falcon, many people assumed it was Richard Doty. It uh, it was not, according to Moore. Uh, Greg Bishop, who wrote Project Beta, um, revealed that based on what Moore told him um, at various times, that uh, the Falcon was actually um, – CIA veteran Harry Rositsky, who died in 2002. Other people uh, dispute that, but I think Greg had more sort of conversations and connections about this topic with uh, with more than probably anybody else. So hey, I'll uh, I'll take uh, I'll, I'll take Greg's analysis on that. So how did all of this work? What was more expected to do, and why was he doing it? In any case. It was Falcon who sought me out in September of 1980. And it was Richard Doty, then with AFOSI at Kirtland Air Force Base, who soon came into play as the middleman in that process. Shortly thereafter, it became apparent to me that my supplying information to the government through Doty on the activities of Paul Benowitz, APRO, and to a lesser extent, several other individuals, was to be a part of this equation. I also discovered that whatever it was that Benowitz was involved with, he was the subject of considerable interest on the part of not one, but several government agencies, and that they were actively trying to defuse him by pumping as much mis disinformation through him as he could possibly absorb. Being a very small part of that process gave me, I thought, something of an advantage. It became my intention to play that advantage for all the information I could get out of it. So Moore is reporting to Richard Doty, who is reporting to other Air Force and intelligence people about what Benowitz is doing in his investigation into the weird lights, radio signals, all these things happening in and around Kirtland Air Force Base. Meanwhile, Benowitz is being fed disinformation by the Air Force that will lead him away from whatever it is he thinks is UFOs, but is probably 
not UFOs. Benowitz is being disinformed. Moore is witnessing this disinformation and he is witnessing what it is doing to Benowitz and how it is contributing to Benowitz's theories and ideas about what is really going on. Benowitz, for his part, continued to make what, in my opinion, seemed to be increasingly irrational claims, most of which gave every appearance of having been influenced by a heavy blanket of disinformation mixed with a small but significant amount of truth. The problem was always one of keeping a level head and trying to carefully sort the shit from the candy, something which Paul didn't seem to be very good at. But then Paul was by that time very emotionally involved with the affair and rather skeptical of advice from any quarter unless it supported what he had already decided was the truth. From my vantage point, being detached from the mainstream but still close enough to appreciate what was happening, it was somewhat easier to assess the process. That sounds very clinical and detached. And one thing that people at the time when they heard more talking about this in 1989 and ever after, afterwards, one question people had, one thing people were concerned about, one thing people said or accused more of was being part of this disinformation process. Uh, more denied that. My role in the affair was largely that of a freelancer providing information on Paul's then current thinking and activities. I had nothing whatsoever to do with the counterintelligence and the disinformation. Although I either knew or was aware of a number of people directly involved with that end of things. Richard Doty was one of these people. Although I came to know Doty well enough to gain the impression that he was faithfully carrying out orders which he personally found distasteful. No, oh, he found it distasteful. That that makes it all better. So Moore um, meets Benowitz in 1981 and was in contact with him until about uh, mid-1985. And he says that that when he met Paul Benowitz in 1981, Benowitz was, was gathering information from a variety of sources and, um, and, and was really putting together a lot of information from all over the place and coming to some pretty outlandish conclusions. As for Benowitz, by 1981, he was gathering data from a variety of sources and amalgamating it with information being fed to him by a number of government people in whom, for some reason, he seemed to have an implicit and abiding faith. The story that emerged from this melange of fact, fiction, fantasy, hearsay, hard data, and government disinformation was absolutely incredible. Yet, somehow, Paul believed in it and set out on a one-man crusade to tell the world that malevolent aliens from space were in league with our government to take over the planet. What had begun in 1979 as an effort to learn whether the behavior of a woman who claimed she had been abducted by UFO aliens and was being influenced by some sort of radio remote control had, in the space of less than three years, blossomed into a tale which rivaled the wildest science fiction scenario anyone could possibly imagine. Does that story sound familiar to anyone? Um, it, it's amazing how this, this, you know, this cover-up story, this 
John Lear-esque dark side hypothesis. The John Lear story, basically, you know, it's cribbed from Benowitz, uh, Cooper's stuff, Bill English's stuff. It all ties together and it all goes back to this this sort of root source. One of this is one of those sort of core root sources of these things. And and the the provenance of of these stories is incredibly uh, complex. And there's all sorts of strange characters that inhabit this scene. But one of the points Moore is making in this speech is that, you know, the the stuff that's being talked about very loudly down the street or down the hall, depending on who remembers what, where Lear and Cooper and English were speaking, it all goes back to this situation with which he was involved. In any case, by mid-1982, Paul's story contained virtually all of the elements found in the current crop of rumors being circulated around the UFO community. There were two groups of aliens, one malevolent, one more friendly. The malevolent ones, which Paul referred to as the Greys, were really in control. And they were the ones responsible for the cattle mutilations, for human abductions, and the implanting of sinister control devices in humans, for having first made and then broken a secret treaty with the U.S. government, for maintaining a secret underground base under Archuleta Peak near Dulce in northwestern New Mexico, and for having supplied the U.S. government with alien space hardware and weapons which ultimately proved defective or which were caused to crash, thus leaving human civilization virtually defenseless against invasion. As the early 80s went on, People throughout the UFO field would interview Benowitz and he would tell the story you know, taken from his own research. I mean he had a computer that was decrypting these signals and translating it. We talked about this in a previous episode. I can't remember which one. But uh, Moore points out that, that Paul was, quote, convincing and compelling in telling these tales. And it's not surprising that people believed it. But Moore was there as these stories were taking shape and he saw – how they came about and what the root of them was and again what this was encouraging in Benowitz's thinking. I was personally aware of the intelligence community's concerted efforts to systematically confuse, discourage and discredit Paul by providing him with a large body of information on the subject of UFOs, the malevolent aliens who allegedly pilot them, the technology they employ, and the underground bases they supposedly possess and occupy. The entire story of a secret treaty between the U.S. government and the aliens, of exchanges of technology between us and the aliens, of battles between aliens and American armed forces, and of aliens allegedly having implanted hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of human beings for for the purpose of taking over the world and using us as cattle or slaves, came about as a result of the disinformation process. I know because I was in a position to observe much of this process as it unfolded, and I was providing regular regular reports on its effectiveness to some of the very people who were doing it to Paul. And I can tell you that it was effective because I watched Paul become systematically more paranoid and more emotionally unstable as he tried to assimilate what was happening to him. They were overloading this man's mind with this information. And it's 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 strange. Um, you read 
books like Greg Bishop's Project Beta, and it's very clear that you know while the things that were you know the information, disinformation, misinformation passed to um, Benowitz uh, was was not good for him. It, it's clear from reading about it from a variety of of sources that uh, that, that Benowitz was also you know not doing himself any favors as far as um, you know believing things and 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 sort of sort of you know fabricating or or accepting all these things and and not being as critical as he could have been and this goes all the way back to you know 1979 when when Jim and Carl Lawrence and were like yeah he he's pretty much decided what he wants to um believe is true and that's the conclusion he's going to come to it's not an ethical out for the people doing the misinformation don't don't get me wrong um what i'm saying is with in Benowitz, they found somebody who was susceptible to what they were selling, and they were able to use that, uh, use his his way of thinking about this and, and his um, his sort of uh, credulousness as uh, as a weapon uh, against him. And as time goes on, it becomes clear that that psychologically uh, and emotionally, all of this is taking quite a toll on Paul Benowitz. He had guns and knives all over his house. He had installed extra locks on his doors. And he swore that they, meaning the aliens, were coming through his walls at night and injecting him with hideous chemicals which would knock him out for long periods of time. He told me they had no he had no idea what they were doing with him after he was knocked out. He began to suffer increasing bouts of insomnia. Others took over the day-to-day -day operation of his business as he went through this. One day, I watched him eat not a bite of his lunch while he chain-smoked 28 cigarettes in 45 minutes. I knew at that time that he was not far from an inevitable nervous collapse. His health had deteriorated, he had lost considerable weight, his hands shook as if from palsy, and he looked terrible. I tried to counsel him to drop the entire UFO thing before his health was completely destroyed. He said he knew things were getting bad and he was trying to cope with it. Not long afterward, I heard he had been hospitalized and was under psychiatric care. Imagine you're sitting there in the audience in 1989 and you've heard these stories and you've heard of Benowitz and you've read the books and the files online and the magazine articles that have been reiterating this story that, that goes back to Benowitz's claims and you're sitting there and you're seeing this guy with this Honestly, great voice. I love Bill Moore's voice. I, it, it just he seems he he sounds uh, he sounds credible, um, which is which is good. You want to sound credible when uh, when you're speaking. I never quite do, but um, you're sitting there. You're hearing this this sort of very serious man um, after you know telling ufology some things about itself that it might not want to hear. Um, sort of go into this entire disinformation process and if you're sitting there you might be thinking you know there's there's two sort of key points that are kind of coming out and one is that there has been horrible action taken against uh, this this man to to discredit him um to to the intention might not have been to drive him to psychological collapse, but that was the effect of of what was done. He had been disinformed and misinformed and and misled um, and encouraged in 
the rabbit holes he was going down to his own detriment. But at the same time, you're also thinking, who, who else might they have done this to? We had Robert Hastings' article where he talks about Linda Howe uh, having a meeting with Doty and some of those things going on. Who else have they been talking to? Who else among us might be like more telling the Air Force or the CIA what we're up to in our own investigations? Um, and the other thing you're thinking is, so all of these stories – we can't trust these stories, these stories we thought we could trust. We can't. And if you're John Lear and Bill English and Bill Moore sitting in that auditorium, um, you might be thinking, oh, God, the the jig is up. My talk tomorrow may not go well because 90% of it Moore is talking about as Air Force disinformation because these stories are still being told and retold and retold by ufologists right up to that present in 1989. Strip away the fluff. And what you have left is essentially the Benowitz story all over again. There is no question in my mind that it's mostly disinformation, pure and simple. And since I know that connections exist between those who are spreading it now and those who were spreading it then, both from the Benowitz angle and from within the intelligence community, it seems reasonable to conclude that those responsible for it are not satisfied their task has been completed even after all this time. Knowing what is going on, however, is simply not enough. The real question is why. That question of why is what intrigued more and that is why he sort of was there as he said with his foot in the door of a secret counterintelligence game that gave every appearance of somehow being directly connected to a high-level government UFO project. He wants to know what is so secret that they're willing to carry out these disinformation campaigns. He wants to get to the truth and if that means – working with people who are doing some pretty questionable things, yeah, you're, you're willing to do it. If, if you want to get involved in this, you're going to have to maybe participate in things that you might ethically have problems with. But Moore explains that disinformation is not something that was new and not something that was unique to the Paul Benowitz situation. Many ufologists have run up against disinformation over the years. Virtually all of them viewed it as a negative process and backed away from it either in anger or disgust as soon as they discovered what they were dealing with. Even today, the UFO community unanimously considers anyone known or suspected dealing in disinformation to be one of the bad guys, someone to be shunned or avoided at all costs, and certainly never ever to be believed. I, on the other hand, determined to take quite a different tack. I would play the disinformation game, get my hands dirty just often enough to lead those directing the process into believing that I was doing exactly what they wanted me to do, and all the while continue to burrow my way into the matrix so as to learn as much as possible about who was directing it and why. It would be a classic case of turning the tables on the very ones who were most confident that they had the situation well in hand. There was just one thing I needed to do this. 
secrecy. I couldn't tell anyone about what I was doing. For if I did, and word got back to those in control, I would be immediately cut off and cast adrift before I could learn anything. It was a formidable problem. Some of the contacts I had made during the Benowitz affair seemed friendly and professed a desire to end the UFO cover-up and assist in getting government information on UFOs out to the public in a slow and methodical manner so as not to create panic. Others seemed more interested in obtaining information from me, often on what other members of the UFO community were doing and sometimes on other completely unrelated subjects. Whatever information I managed to get from these individuals in return usually came as a result of asking just the right questions in just the right ways. Sometimes it took months or even years of establishing a relationship with someone before anyone useful came from, anything useful came from it. The most difficult part of it all <clears throat> was trying to determine what was real and what was bullshit. Moore explains that for disinformation to work, it has to have enough leavening of truthful things within it to be to be credible. So it's very difficult to understand exactly what is going on and what is true. And if you push back, if you kick, if you tell people what's going on, you get nothing. And then you're you're, you're playing like he says it's 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 a dangerous game. One of the things I've always thought because I I've, I've read in in the various books that that more did try to tell Benowitz, you know, not all of this is true. This is, you know, they might be screwing with you. And Benowitz, you know, he he was reluctant to believe that. He trusted what the Air Force people were telling him. Um, so Moore did sort of try to do that, he says. But I always sort of wondered, you know, well, couldn't he have just blown the whistle on the whole thing? But if you blow the whistle on the whole thing, two things happen. One, you're cut off. Right. And two, you're seen as somebody that betrayed the UFO community because you got involved with it in the first place. So no matter which thing you do, you're kind of stuck if you want to try to fight what's going on. Um, and again, you get uh, you get nothing more. We'll talk about the MJ-12 papers and also talk about the Aztec UFO crash as being an example of this government disinformation. And that's too complex a thing to get into here. But um, the Aztec crash is, is one of those – we need to do an episode on the Aztec crash actually at one of these times. As Moore began to wrap up the main part of his presentation, you can hear on the recording the audience getting kind of restless to the point where the MC has to step in. I've held my silence on this matter for more than six years. Now you know the truth. Disinformation, disinformation is a strange and bizarre game. Those who play it are completely aware that an operation's success is dependent upon dropping information upon a target or mark in such a way that the person will accept it as truth and will repeat and even defend it to others as if it were true. Once this has been accomplished, we certainly have a number of rude people in this audience. That's too bad. 
Once this has been accomplished, the work of the counterintelligence specialist is complete. They can simply withdraw in the confidence that the dirty work of spreading their poison seeds will be done by others. Those who want proof of how well the process works need only look around you. Every time one of you repeats an unverified or unsubstantiated bit of information without qualifying it as such, you are contributing to that process. And every time you do it, somebody in a need-to-know position sits back and has a horse laugh at your expense. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. But imagine, imagine sitting in that audience, getting lectured about disinformation and being a sucker for disinformation and not being a mark, being lectured on that by a guy who stood by while a disinformation operation took place right in front of him and wrought all of this havoc, all these underground base stories and alien implant stories. He's you know, scolding the audience for being suckers about this, but he might not have been a perpetrator, but he was certainly there witnessing all of this take place. So regardless of, of how correct some of what Moore is saying may be about the dangers of misinformation and about how the UFO community needs to be on guard against some some things. I can imagine the people in the audience are like, you are not the one to be telling us this, pal. You are, you are not that. So now it's time for the question and answer session. And what's glorious about this is that um, Moore will be asking himself the question. <laughs> I just have to laugh because everybody who's spoken in front of a crowd, especially a crowd that is that is fairly hostile. I spoke in front of a, an incredibly hostile crowd one time and not on a UFO thing. It was something else, an incredibly hostile crowd. And if I could have done this Bill Moore gimmick of asking myself the questions that I wanted to answer, it would have been much more fun for everybody. So we're not going to go through all of these questions. There's a lot of them. But um, Here's here's a question. Mr. Moore, are you currently involved with providing information to any government agency about UFOs or about people involved with the UFO phenomenon? No, I have not had any such involvement since I'm a little ashamed of some people in this audience, regardless of what you believe, what you hear, or not. This is not a debate. It is a paper trying to be presented. Now, please show a little courtesy. Thank you. Yeah, show a little courtesy to the the government mole who is, you know, scolding you about your gullibility. Here's another question. Mr. Moore, are you presently involved in knowingly spreading any sort of disinformation about UFOs? No. The only conscious involvement I have ever had with a disinformation operation was that which I have already outlined in connection with the Benowitz case. Fair enough. Mr. Moore, 
Are you presently or have you ever been on the payroll of any agency of the U.S. government? No. I have to admit, my paranoia noticed how that question was worded. On the payroll of an agency of the U.S. government. Um, Not a question like, did anybody ever give you any money for any reason at some time that was – Possibly shortly after providing information about Paul Benowitz. Um, just like a guy in the street hands you an envelope. No, $500. Wow. Luckily, I'm not on the payroll of a government agency. But, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I was going to say I have no reason not to take more at his word. I, I, we kind of do, perhaps. Um, another question. Let's, let's do one more question for Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore, do you know anything about the so-called Weitzel letter? Sir, yes. The letter, which is loosely based upon an actual UFO case, was written anonymously to APRO in July of 1980 by Richard Cody. It is directly related to the Benowitz affair. Essentially, it was bait. The FOSI knew that Benowitz had close ties with the APRO organization at the time. They were interested in recruiting someone within the organization who would be in a position to provide them with feedback on Benowitz's activities and communications. Since I was an APRO board member, the Weitzel letter was passed to me for action shortly after it had been received. It was not long thereafter that I came to know Richard Doty and began to provide him with information about Benowitz and his case. So if you're looking for connections between APRO and the uh, the intelligence community or the military community and, and, and sort of those sorts of things that Lester asked about in his email, there's kind of an example. Um, APRO was sort of targeted with this disinformation as a way to draw somebody into this, um, into this project. Moore's speech would uh, generate a lot of um, a lot of interest. It was written up in the uh, the issue of UFO magazine. Following this, uh, with the headline uh, "Disinformation Ploy Revealed: UFO Researchers Confessional," and in the August 1989 issue of the MUFON UFO Journal, their official sort of recap of the symposium would have this to say. Moore was being vocally challenged by different accusers in the audience who interrupted on several occasions. I personally was transfixed, as I'm sure were others, by the tale unfolding. A couple of people even stumbled out of the lecture hall, gripped by a combination of shock, anguish, and tears. More than a few misunderstood Moore to say that he willingly and knowingly participated in the dispersal of disinformation, which included the distribution of counterfeit documentation. Moore said later that he was not aware the documents were false at the time and that he withdrew from participation sometime in 1984 when he learned the full extent of the deception. Allegations and insinuations about Moore's activities have been circulating for some time. It might be presumptuous to suggest that their open airing resulted in his remarkable statement. Maybe it was only one of many straws. What remains to be seen, however, is whether Moore's symposium speech clears up or muddies further ufology's already murky waters. Hopefully, it will leave the lake a whole lot less contaminated with the pollutants of rumor, innuendo, and deliberately doctored data. At any rate, Moore left the stage through a rear door, counseling patients, and promising all would be revealed in due time. That seems a little optimistic. 
honestly. Um, Greg Bishop writing in Project Beta and, and talking elsewhere about this, he was there present at the, uh, at the time, uh, noted that uh, when a lot of the references to some people leaving in tears, uh, UFO magazine editor Vicki Cooper was uh, one who ran crying from the auditorium. There was a lot of criticism. A lot of criticism of Moore who would would fade from the UFO scene within a few years of this. It, it would be hard to trust Moore or anybody who had been in that position ever again really. He would surface from time to time. He's interviewed by Greg Bishop in uh, an issue of Excluded Middle magazine and he was of course a source for the book Project Beta. I do not know if they are still out there on the internet but – Years ago, probably, gosh, 15, maybe more years ago, uh, Bishop had more on a few episodes of Radio Mysterioso, and those interviews were, oh yeah, at least 15 years ago, because it was right around the time Project Beta came out. So, okay, yeah, a while ago. <laughs> um, if they're still out there, track them down. Um if I can find them, I'll throw the links up in the show notes, but I'm not going to, you know, knock myself out to do so um, because we all have the internet, right? Uh, but these are these are really interesting interviews, and and Moore is an interesting guy. It's um, I don't know him personally. I've never met him. I've never talked to him. I I probably never will. He'd have no reason to talk to somebody like me, um, especially after sort of being snarky on the podcast here about him, but. Here, here's my question for you. Actually, it's my question for all of us as I uh, as I, I bring this to a close. Here's my question. Imagine you are more in 1980, in September of 1980, and you are approached by Richard Doty who represents somebody who is known as the Falcon. Um, what would you do? What would you do? Let's let's make that our question for the the listener feedback section of of the next episode. What would you do if you were more? Either at the beginning or as things go on and as you witness this disinformation campaign taking place, what would you do? And and remember, you are somebody who is a UFO investigator. You're trying to find the truth. Um what would you do? It seems like it would be an easy call. Well, I wouldn't be a patsy for the government. Well, nobody sees themselves as a patsy for the government. They see themselves as being a truth seeker or trying to get to information they couldn't get to otherwise. Um, It's a more complex question um, the more you think about it. And I'm not sure what I'd do. I'll think about it too. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that next time. But this is a fascinating speech. It's an excellent speech. It, it, it's incredibly well done. Um, the, the, get, get on YouTube and find it. Uh, get the MUFON Journal and find it. It's fascinating stuff. And apart from the really sort of tragic revelations about what this process, um, how this process contributed to um, Paul Benowitz's misfortunes, Moore has some incredibly I think accurate and incisive things to say about the state of UFO research in 1989 and indeed now. And, and yes, we can be snarky and, and say you know he's you know, he's part of the problem. Um, was part of the problem at the time, but uh, still good things to keep in mind. 
Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments and your assessment of what you would have done in Moore's situation via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address those next time. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>